Yeah, hi, uh, it's me. A quick interruption here at the very beginning. We had a little bit of a technical issue um, this week. The technical issue being that Tegan accidentally forgot to press her record button, so I only have the remote recording over the internet. And as it is with German internet going to outside of Germany, um, there were a few issues. You will hear them later on. I will try to fix them. I'm recording this before I actually attempted this. So wish me luck. Um, I'm just excited as you are to figure out if I managed to fix these mistakes or not. Um, the only thing I can promise you is that next week we will record again properly. Um, so this is uh, something. It's a learning, learning experience for all of us. Um, so enjoy what's left of this episode and look forward to next week's episode when it will sound great again. Um, right now we have an exciting episode for you where we talk about soap bubbles and pollination. Have fun. Hello, Hello. this is your captain speaking. Um, we're about to record a new episode. I'm your Yoram is feeling self-conscious because he thinks he looks like an airline pilot today. Yeah. Yeah, Tegan made us dress up again. And Tegan has all this like choice, this range of beautiful dresses that she can put on. And I have one shirt and one tie that I put on every single time she says it's dress up time. I'm definitely not against you wearing beautiful dresses if, if you want to. Like, I just don't have any. That's my problem. I You could first find have some. To I have to make or buy some, and then I could dress up and be pretty, but I haven't done this. Surely your priorities. I happen to know that you did have a long, flowing, lab coat-based dress. I mean, no, I it's not it really closed at the front, so that could be a problem for, for my viewing, unpleasure, displeasure. Um, but it, it is dressy. Uh, uh, yeah, uh, it was very, it's, it's very warm today, um, so I almost did the whole thing today without any pants but i can assure you i'm wearing pants but i'm wearing shorts so i'm even like uh, a, a pilot uh, that has no sense of fashion like i was gonna say screw you but i guess like i didn't i didn't shave my legs or whatever i should be like wearing fancy <laughs> stockings or i don't know pedicure or something something no i'm a very disappointing pilot when people think of like sexy men in good in, in fine clothes for who are piloting large aircraft i'm pretty much the opposite so would they have to be shaved i think that might be one of the um the gender like the biases that works against men this idea that like being not clean shaven is like you should have no beard or having a beard is, is scruffy that seems like something um, have you seen a pilot with a bit i mean you don't really see the pilots these days right is that part of their plan? They don't want you to know which one's the pilot in case there's like some sort of like terrorism options. I just googled if uh, do do pilots have to shave, and it says that um, there's a reason why pilots don't have be uh, beards. It's um, coming down to oxygen. Uh, they can't put on the masks like safely when oh, well, there's a drop then. in pressure. So just to avoid any risk of not getting the mask right, they um, are clean shaven, so they have a tight yeah. seal. At least it's what the first Google result says. Like, <laughs> I haven't factored this, but yeah. So we we had a friend who was always. We might have mentioned this before. We had a friend who was doing um, mass spec, so like looking at proteins within samples, and he was bald, but he had a, quite a nice beard, and he was trying to always find ways to kind of cover his like beard to, because um there's a big problem with mass spec where 
what gets identified as the most abundant stuff. So if you like shed a lot of skin cells and you end up with all of these um, human proteins flooding the, the instrument and basically like losing the quality of your plant data. Um, so he was like trying to find innovative ways of like <laughs> closing off his beard so that he wouldn't get this um, beard proteins keratin um, in his sample. Which is quite yeah. fun. My, my solution was to get a better machine that uh, where it doesn't matter as much if I have carotene in all of my samples, because I did. I at one point tried with like a hairnet and a thing for my my beard and goggles and gloves and a lab coat and trying to mimic sort of a clean room. But at the same time, I was in a room with other people uh, in a small room. Uh, it's so other people's fault. Sure, no, sure. It's also probably also my fault. Probably there's like my skin particles, like everybody's skin particles hanging out in the air. Um, I would definitely always come and like scratch my head over your like try and remove my dandruff into your MS samples if that's yeah helping you shift the blame there. It was definitely I could see that in my data sets. I was like Tegan Keratin um, <laughs> was linked to you. Barclay, it's like <laughs> like superior Tegan Keratin. I wrote. I think the biggest thing that I I did was that I wrote like my thesis draft to a point that I can now send it from my, my sort of first uh, supervisor and helper in figuring, like writing a good thesis. Now I could send it to the next person, which is you, to get my English straight. Yeah. Um, and then soon <laughs> I can send it homework. to my boss. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I got you. Uh, I gave you a lot of homework this week. I gave you like two articles to proofread from me and my thesis. Um, yeah. So thank you. And I'm guessing the thesis is going to be the, the bulk of the work there, like yeah. as far as, yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's only yeah. 90 pages but no. although many pictures so that's um <laughs> it's like a children's yeah. picture book um mm. and you my my pretty much over only exciting news is that two days ago i went for a walk in the morning i've taken like walking quite early in the morning because there's not many people out so it's even more isolated which is really nice um and at one stage i got overtaken by a man on a penny farthing which <laughs> was a joy <laughs> yeah i was like that's Okay, why not? Um, and I was thinking, there's a guy, um, my housemate's been talking about this guy on YouTube who, I have to find the link, um, he like tries to learn a new thing each week. So there's this idea that like if you spend one week just trying to learn a thing, you can get like not great at it, but kind of like okay at it by the end of the week. Um, mm -hmm. And I was wondering if this guy, he got bored during COVID isolation and decided that that week he was going to learn penny farthing writing or, <laughs> i mean maybe he must have had the penny farthing before yeah because this is not something you have lying around or you can ask your friends to borrow or it. maybe like we just never noticed a trend like you know like treadmills um office chairs like screens like all this like home office and home gym stuff sold out at the start of the the isolation it was really hard to find it and like all the prices <laughs> went up so maybe we just didn't notice that the penny farthings just got really really <laughs> expensive um like in march and april <laughs> it could be a thing yeah, it could be a thing, but um, yeah. Cool. So that was like, there was uh, in our notes, we had just the word penny. I was just, what? what? So yeah, cool. I mean, I had another farthing. thing I wanted to talk about, which was um, super cool. So yesterday, about five minutes before it happened, I was like browsing through Instagram and I found out about Pint of Science doing a um, discussion that was um, live and on and it was of race science, a conversation by Pint of Science. Um, it was mainly focusing on the scientific writing, but also her talking to um, Dr. Uh, and kind of discussing race 
um, a bit from a UK perspective, but also like kind of more broadly because Angela has just written a book about a year, not just, um, which is based on bias um, and how it's interpreted and how, yeah, basically how biases. I haven't read it yet. It's on my to-do list um, to read that book because the talk was just really, really amazing. Um, and I wanted to, unfortunately it wasn't recorded, but I've followed both of them on Instagram and I, I would recommend if, if you see any of them talking in the future mm-hmm. um, to to look into their stuff. So um, Esther is science.uncovered on Instagram um, and Angela, you can find with her her full name, Angela Saini. Um, but it was, it was a really, really great talk and it, I don't know, there was just a way of discussing so many key important ideas and facts in, it was only an hour, and the way they were discussed and kind of shown in such like a, like such a nice argument, like like a discussion. So I, I put down a few of the things that I, I really liked that came up, um, if you have a few seconds to mm-hmm. kind of listen to it. So um, I think... Like Esther raised this point about scientists um, specifically, how we are the people who are trained to, it's our job to, and we're pretty much like the best at finding obscure references to support our arguments or like del- like trawling through like literature, you know, from the 1800s or whatever, when, when, it, when we're trying to support our, our theories and discussions, like, <laughs> I mean, like also modern stuff, but like, this is our entire job is like looking through what's out there and not our entire job, but a lot of it. And she was kind of saying, it's interesting how these scientists are the same people who, when you want to have difficult conversations, all of a sudden come to you and are like, oh, I don't know what to do. Like, can you find me some resources? Can you do, like, how how would I possibly understand how this? And it's just like, yeah, this is, like, you can do this. You know that you can do it. You just, like, don't want to. This is a, yeah, so that was really interesting. Um, and then similarly, Angela was reminding um, of this idea that the job of scientists is also to question things and to do experiments, to have hypotheses, but then to test the hypotheses and work around them. And again, there's been this kind of, dominant, not even a fringe idea, it's like been a dominant idea for so long that there are divisions that are based on race. I mean, also gender, which is another issue, but like there are like biological explanations for race. And that's basically because of historical like bullshit where people said, oh yeah, we can justify what's happening in the world by just saying these people, you know, deserve to be in this position because biology makes them want to be slash prone to be. So it's completely crap. But we just kind of refuse to question this because it's convenient Mm. and again her point was here like our job as scientists is to be questioning these things so if you have any like idea that is a belief system you should be questioning um the beliefs and then yeah like associated with that um i found out that samuel cartwright like came up with this idea of a disease for black enslaved people that explained why they would run away and try to flee captivity. So he was so convinced, and people at that time were so convinced that, like, a certain race of people, like, naturally should be enslaved, that he made a disease to justify why they would want to be free, which is, like, such an insanity that... um, Some other things were the discussion that like racism exists still on every level of society and also at all levels of 
um, education. So it's not something like we often have this idea that racists are these kind of like thugs. Um, but they were saying, no, it's, ev it's, it's everywhere. And the reason is because it's, it's not an educated thing. It's a set of beliefs. And that's like a really, and I mean, yeah, we've seen this also um, in science. And then um, I think the other thing that I found really important and it really like rang true to me was this idea that institutes and companies and like universities they have this commitment to diversity um or like anti-racist stance but they also have this tendency to continuously tolerate racists mm -hmm. and they often justify the tolerations based on the brilliance or the the output or the genius of that person who happens to be racist as if there's a kind of a trade-off yeah. which the first really important thing there is like well, being able to tolerate that racism is fine if you're not the one who's being targeted by the racism. So this is completely like a a horrible thing if, you know, I'm tolerating somebody who who doesn't like people who are not my race. It's fine for me to tolerate it, but it's not the same threshold for people who are being targeted to, to tolerate it. Um, and the second thing is like, this is completely a fake argument that the idea that somebody else couldn't have the same brilliance as that person, like the reason they get to stay is because they're driving other brilliant people out of their field by having these mm -hmm. like disgusting beliefs. So there's this other like this fallacy of like, oh, it's worth it because look how brilliant X is. Like these ideas and all that's we don't have evidence. There's no proof of that. And yeah, even if it was classification, but we don't even have proof of this. Anyway. Um, <laughs> YouTube channel. Um, Angela has a few books out. One of them is about um, race science, but there's another one also about um, women and how women have been mis misrepresented. Um, and the the science behind that, that one's called Inferior. Um, I think I can find the full title. Dun, dun, dun. That came out in 2017. It's Inferior: The True Power of Women and the Science That Shows um, It Got It Wrong. I think something like that. And the, sh and the science that shows it. And then the, the race one that came out at the end of last year, I think, is superior, the return of race science. Um, yeah. But that was, it, was really, it was really a great talk. So I just wanted to yeah. say that was cool. Yeah, that sounds Sorry, really I was exciting. Bit, I was talking for a bit long there. No, no, it's fine. <laughs> it's just, yeah, I, I'm just a little bit sad that I missed it and can't rewatch it um, because I, I think you sent me the link and the, the stuff. Um, but I was busy with something else. I couldn't like. Swap Unfortunately, it I only found out about it like only like literally yeah. as it was starting. Um, yeah. But I'm definitely going to follow. I, I would guess Angelus at least would be doing a lot of talks in the next in the coming months, given the topicality of her her um, recent book. So hopefully there'll be other stuff um, that yeah. you can see. But I would I would really recommend it. Was, it was really great. Cool. Shall we talk about science a little bit? About like more other science. I mean, that was scientific as well. About already. like. Plant, plant science, maybe? Plant science, maybe plant science. It's the paper of the week. It's been a while since yeah, we've is. heard that jingle. Mm -hmm. um, because we did special episodes and other episodes. And so now we are back to our regular paper of the week. Um, and this is just three words. So bubble pollination. And it pretty much summarizes everything. Um mm. Uh, yeah, uh, it is by uh, Shi Yang uh, and Aijiro Miyako, uh, Miyako, 
sorry, Miyako, um, from the Graduate School of Advanced Science and Technology in Japan, um, in Asahidai, um, or no, I don't know if that's the street name. Um, I <laughs> there's three. Yeah, it's a Japanese uh, work. Yeah, and it deals with pollination and soap bubbles. Oh, I read something the other day, which was like done by. It was by a group in Georgia, Atlanta, Atlanta, Georgia. Georgia is a state in Georgia. And they just had Georgia, and they didn't have like Georgia and USA. This is so obnoxious. Georgia is a country. Like you can assume that people know your state about the country. entire country, right? Like, this is so, it's like yeah. And just you mean the only person. There's one in Scotland. Like our one is named after the one in Scotland. <laughs> I remember when there was a conflict between Russia and Georgia, the country, um, people on Twitter were really upset when they heard the news that Russia is in, uh, invading Georgia with tanks. And they were like, I'm right on the border here in Georgia. I don't see any tanks coming. What is this fake news? And I'm like, no, it's, it's not your little state. It's the actual country of Georgia that is in a major conflict with Russia. But anyway, back to the pollination. Um, what I also like is that you can... Like that, you can sort of get a feeling for the reasoning and the personality behind this paper. Something that's often sort of hidden behind very sort of structuralized language. Um, and it's so, charming. It's really charming. Yeah. What's in there is charming. So um, pollination. Uh, I think before we start talking about like the actual paper, we should refresh everyone's knowledge a little bit about pollination and how does it work in a, in very general terms. Um, so the very basic thing is that plants produce pollen and they have stigma. Um, the pollen is the male part of sexual reproduction and the stigma is the female part. And the pollen has to end up on the stigma for fertilization to happen. And then the pollen growth, uh, grows, uh, extends a pollen tube down the stigma to the egg cell where then um, the actual yeah, mixing of genetic material happens and then the fruit is formed and the seeds and so on. This um, is like this is obviously not all plants. Some plants do reproduce in other ways. Actually, yeah. this is specifically for sexually reproducing plants, making their pollen and yeah. yeah. Um, and sometimes um, the the whole process is very simple and straightforward. It's just the pollen and the stigma in the same flower, very close to each other, and just like a little bit of wind, or might, sometimes not even that is needed, so that the pollen touches the stigma and itself pollinates, and the plant goes to the next generation through sexual reproduction without any outside help. Um, Arabidopsis, mm. for example, works like this. Um, yeah. But so sometimes it's basically nothing, it just like falls on itself. Yeah. Sometimes it's a bit more complicated. It's like wind or water or some like physical force is a bit beyond just like gravity and then the next level up is like we need somebody to help us do the sex thing so let's look for a bee or a fly or a moth or a bat or some pollinator to help us get our sex on yeah um yeah because sometimes the yeah i mean pollen sometimes is on different you have different uh genus gender gender you have different sexes of uh, plants. So you have male plants and female plants. Sometimes you have just male flowers and female flowers on the same plant. Um, and sometimes the flowers are just in a structure that um, the pollen and the stigma are very far uh, apart from each other. And that's when you need pollinators. 
And that's like, that's often kind of a deliberate, and I'm using a little bit like these little inverted speech bubble things because it's, you know, choice. Um, But it's kind of the plants want that they can't self-pollinate because if they pollinate with something else, they get more genetic diversity. So their offspring possibly have more fitness or at least more varied um, abilities or or genetic um, setup. So increased chance of survival in the world. So plants like deliberately physically separate their their male bits from their female bits or they temporarily temporarily separate them so they make sure that the pollen becomes ripe only like before or after um the female bits get all sticky yeah um and when we grow crops we rely on pollinating insects for a large part especially when we grow fruit um and yeah in a sort of undisturbed system or for a very long time um, it worked fairly well but with changes in the way we do our agriculture um, we started to want wanting to produce fruit in times when the pollinators that work with these species are not around yet Um, for example um, we start growing fruit uh, much earlier during the year when the insects are not flying around yet Um, and the other thing is that uh, pollinating insects are also dying off um, because of human activity, because of uh, the climate crisis, um, or for unknown reasons. Um, it's sort of a mixture of these. We don't really know what's happening yet. Um, there's diseases, there's, um, use of like, pollution, yeah, climate change is one thing. Um, yeah. Yeah. And um, so what's done instead is artificial pollination. Um mm-hmm. I find it actually quite charming in the paper uh, already they talk about this that when in, in Japan when they're farming pear, pears pear um, <laughs> pear that they go around with like little sort of feather dusters like little round feather pollination tools and then they gently touch all of the flowers like they cover this in pollen and then they touch all the flowers um, <laughs> to yeah fertilize them and to, to actually get fruit so um, in some parts in the lab there's some people who use um, electric toothbrushes without the um, the actual bristles on it just the vibration um, i think for tomatoes it helps like vibrate the pollen um to move it in and um mm. this is the method that people use yeah, yeah and i think also for for raspberries and some things in greenhouses or tents where insects don't really have um good access to it access, yeah. they also have to manually pollinate the, the plant so that they actually bear fruit um so that's that is the thing like um a lot of our crops, like the major cereal crops, don't really require pollinators, like wheat and rice and stuff that can do it by itself. Um, and then there's a lot of like crops that can still pollinate without um, like extra pollinators. But the the um, amount of poll- like the amount of fruit that is born, the amount of successful uh, pollination increases. Obviously, if you have a pollinator or if you have a little bit of human help, so you can also just kind of supplement under different situations. Yeah. Um, and in the past, the author Miyako um, um, and some other colleagues, they uh, also built an artificial tool. They built a drone that yeah. was equip- equipped with horse hair covered in some sort of sticky gel. And from the way I understood it, they would fly this around and try to sort of fly near the flowers um, and have the pollen stick to this to the horse hair and then sort of touch flowers with that so they can... In the way I understood it, it was basically a tiny flying pegasus. Like, it's like a little <laughs> horse that's flying through the air and it's like a little bit sticky and it runs into the pollen. And it like, it just bashes itself into flowers because the problem is this didn't actually really work. So they could get the pollen, I think, but they just completely smashed up the flowers and no fruit could be grown. And I 
think it's already a pretty good comment on the, the value of this, that, that, that was the published research, um, because this is a really important topic. So even though they and then killed all of the people they were trying to make, that was still something where there was enough interest in the field. Yeah. Uh, yeah, but they got a publication out of it, and um, yeah, it was an interesting starting point, but they said this has to work better like we have to find a different way to do this so it actually works um, because i think what is important to mention is that the way it's conventionally done the, the manual pollination is takes a lot of time by by workers um, and it takes a lot of pollen that has to be isolated first mm -hmm. and then put on the plants and then also depending on the method that you use because you don't not only um, have the feather dust this thing um, there's also ways that you spray it either in liquid or in sort of a dry dusty form you spray the pollen um, but then either it might be damaging to the flowers or it might waste a lot of the pollen because it can't actually reach it reaches everything on the plant, not just the flowers. Um, so there's a major potential there to make this whole process easier, um, less labor intensive and more efficient in terms of pollen use. Uh, and that's where they started here. And uh, there was one... You want to read the most beautiful quote from the paper, don't you? Yeah, that... Um, it starts when in, in the introduction when they start talking about like why soap bubbles there is this this quote for centuries scientific studies on soap bubbles have fascinated people of all ages mainly because of their beautiful rainbow colors and thin film-based geomet uh, geometric structures based on simple scientific principles and what i particularly liked about this um, is this idea um, of scientific studies of all ages and it plays into this idea that everybody at one point is a scientist uh, when when they're children because as a child you sort of do this ex these experiments you play around and you also play with soap bubbles and you figure out how they work how they fly how they feel um, <laughs> and also there were also sort of grown-up scientific studies on soap bubbles but i like the sentence I mean, because it includes all of this because it's sort of a magical toy but it's also uh, physically a very exciting thing a soap bubble I mean, it's nice because it's soap bubbles. If I say, like, for centuries, scientific studies on eating cat biscuits have fascinated people of all ages. Like, I mean, I can also say that, like, <laughs> it wouldn't be children true. eat cat biscuits. <laughs> but it's not, I mean, but it is it is charmingly written. And yeah, as we said, this charm kind of carries on throughout the whole paper. It's It's quite lovely. Yeah. I also like the idea that what they were creating here was chemically functionalized soap bubbles. Like, they have functionalized the soap bubble. Yeah, they turned them from toy into a serious tool. Um, yeah. And so why why would you choose soap bubbles? What's the the rationale between choosing a soap bubble as opposed to a tiny flying horse? <laughs> uh, the soap bubbles are much more lightweight. Um, so mm. when they hit something, they usually don't destroy what they hit. They're very soft, which is important when they hit like these very um, tiny structures of the of the plant, the stigma. Um, you don't want to crush them. Um, mm -hmm. So they're, they're very soft. Um, the detergent used is potentially biodegradable so it's also um, not a, a harmful chemical in most cases and you can load it with very small payloads that can be easily distributed um, and you can also um, directionally aim soap bubbles which I think is also hard with the tiny flying horses to mm -hmm. directionally aim them. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you can shoot bubbles at things in a certain way as we'll get to a bit later 
And they realized, and also another quote is that where they said that they accidentally found that they can integrate natural pollen into soap bubbles, into soap film, uh, using various bubble devices. And bubble devices is another another nice description of something that there's also photos in the paper. They use these bubble makers that you see as toys mm. or as like novelty things um, that continuously... They have a kind of bubble gun but they also have one of these automatic ones that like it's a, f a solid structure that you place on a table and it just like turns inside and makes bubbles so they've got like yeah. some different bubble making options there yeah and um and also like the, the use of the word accidentally it's not often that people admit that their discovery was in part due to an accident but i think that is how a fairly large amount of science ends up happening yeah, I think in the uh, in the article that I read about this uh, research article on the Science Mag, um, the author talked about the fact that she was playing with her child in a garden, uh, like in a park, and was playing with soap bubbles there, um, and saw soap, soap bubbles hitting plants, and then it's, she sort of got this idea um, that maybe if you put pollen into the soap bubbles and they hit the plants, there could be something interesting going on there. Um, and I don't know if that was the accident where they figured this out or if there was another thing um, that I mean, they don't go into detail. But yeah, I quite like that they stumbled upon the idea of putting pollen into uh, soap bubbles. Okay, so having decided that they're going to use um, the soap bubbles, they then did some various kind of optimization tests where they basically used um, different kinds of surfactants. I realize I don't know how to say that word properly. Um, it's basically things which lower the surface tension of... Um, Thing of a surface um, and they tried to choose ones which would obviously have least disruption for the actual pollen activity so they looked at how um, the pollen tube would develop and the germination ratio of the pollen once it had been incorporated into these bubbles which is basically just making sure that putting the pollen into the bubble um, mixture was not then killing the pollen you don't want to end up with dead pollen because you're not going to get pollination happening mm -hmm. um yeah and I found something that I, I quite like, which was that generally higher surfactant con concentration can help to make a lot of soap bubbles, which is basically, again, what all children find when they're experimenting. The more detergent you add into your, your soap bubble mix, the more um, bubbles you get. And then they also said, besides larger, larger numbers of pollen grains, which often have water-insoluble agglomeration, excuse me, tends to disturb the formation of bubbles in the nozzle of the gun so that it decreases the number of soap bubbles. Which to me is basically like, if you put too much pollen in, you like block up the, the top of the gun, which is again, yeah, I think that makes a lot of sense. But the way it's said is like, this is yeah. now in a scientific, um, scientifically appropriate way. Yeah, that they yeah. at one point had to clean out their soap bubble guns uh, because there was too much pollen stuck inside it. Um, mm. Yeah, so they, they pretty much had an optimization problem there that they had to test a couple of conditions, test how much pollen they would add um, and how well they could then blow the bubbles, how stable the bubbles were as well. And um, they, they tested that at one point. Um, but they found a good uh, combination of these factors um, where I think, if I remember correctly, they had around 30% of um, the flowers. No, I think 30% of the pollen that they would put on the flowers would grow the pollen tubes, which, which was their readout. So they were active and um 
while this is already um, an okay result, you just need more pollen if you only have 30%, they wanted to optimize this further. And what they did is that they added some um, uh, growth-promoting minerals. So, um, yeah, a couple of, of sort of nutrients of minerals that were proven in the past to increase the, the activity of the pollen. And that worked out. Um, then they also yeah, like altered the pH and like I think added calcium and also added gelatin, which was apparently also helpful. Yeah, I think that's the part where where the bubbles became mechanistically stabilized or mechanically stabilized. That's um, when they then added this like this HPMC, which is kind of like a cellulosey thing. This is like stabilizing it so that the bubbles don't pop immediately. They can kind of move through the environment a bit um, more before bursting. Yeah, but in the end, they had this optimized bubbles that had the right amount of pollen in them, the right detergent at the right concentration um, with these promoting growth factors so that they could have reliable good bubbles there. Um, and then they tested them uh, in the lab and then later also in the field um, and tested how much, how many bubbles they would need um, to actually get successful germination and, and successful fertilization of the egg cell. Um, and what they found was that um, two to three bubbles is enough and more than 10 bubbles is harmful um, because then probably there's too much detergent coming into mm. the flower or surfactant and that would then kill the flowers off. Yeah. And they did some other tests and basically did a final kind of comparison with pears and they could find that firstly, using these bubbles, not only did they get this pollination to start, but they actually got um, development of fruit of the pears after 16 days of their bubble pollination, so it works. Um, but even better is that they found that while pears can like self-pollinate with just wind or kind of um, environmental issues, about like 60% of the pears kind of pear flowers got kind of pollinated. Um, with the bubbles, it went up to 95%. And this was the equivalent, the same value as if people were hand pollinating by the kind of old school way. So this is really impressive. They're basically doubling their pair yield if you're basing it on like um, successful pollinations and it's as good as the, the traditional methods. So it's a nice result there. Yeah. And at this point, they were still doing this manually as in they would go around with the soap gun, the bubble gun and sort of spray soap bubbles uh, manually into the tree. And they were doing it not only for pears, but they were also trying a few other species as well. So it's it's not pear specific. Yeah. Um, they but also had then, some flowers later on, right? That they that had like nice. Yeah, big some lilies, I think. And yeah, yeah, there's a picture of like lily flowers kind of set up in in some jugs, basically, and them like shooting. Yeah. At the lilies, um, and then the 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 beautiful grand statement from the paper: our final goal was to perform robotic pollination using a drone and soap bubbles. So, <laughs> yeah, what they did first, they had to further like harden the bubbles because when you have the bubble gun or the, the bubble sprayer mounted to a drone, you have very strong down, downward facing winds from the propellers. So, mm -hmm. um, the regular bubbles that they had before, they would just burst immediately when leaving and so they would. Yeah, not work at all. So they added this this modified cellulose compound, HPMC, um, and made bubbles that were so stable that they could observe some of them last for five hours. And when mm. they pressed them, they did some compression tests to figure out how hard they are. They said they heard a distinct pop when, when they were pressed. Um, and they wrote that in the paper and saying like, this sort of this audible pop is a proof that these are very tough bubbles. Um, 
but at the same time, they were not that tough. They were not like hard now, hard balls. They would crush the flowers. They would still have the soap bubble <laughs> properties. Um, and, yeah. and actually, they would burst on impact with the flowers. Um, but overall, they were much more stable and sort of industrial-grade bubbles now. So then they shove these industrial grade bubbles into um, the drone and then did the pollination basically by drone. And there's a bit more optimization involved. So they had to alter the speed at which the, zone, the drone was flying in order to get the right force um, to make the bubbles kind of go towards the flower and like not smack into them and, you know, everything happening. right. So they did a bit more optimization. But in the end, they basically got a system where you can pollinate things with the drone and yeah. the bubbles. Yeah. And and I could find that is uh, at least as effective as manual pollination with the feathers the, um, uh, or sometimes even uh, better as uh, when you factor in that they use much less pollen. Uh, I forgot like how much, but I think it was in the range of like tenfold um, increase in efficiency sure. or something, but mm. they used um, yeah much less pollen that is, is needed uh, for the same amount of pollination for the same number of fruit in the end in, in the orchard. Um, so I like the... Uh, oh, yeah? Mm -hmm. No, I just said like, it's a very cool system now, like uh, a flying platform flying around, spraying bubbles and um, with much less manual labor and much less pollen needed, um, getting the same amount of uh, pollination happening. I like the fact that at the end of the paper, they also said, hey, this is like kind of cool and fun, but we still need to work a little bit more. And the thing that they pointed out was that there was a problem potentially with the biodegradability of the bubbles they had. So they suggested making, um, like optimizing to make the bubbles a bit more biodegradable and also edible, they said, paper. So they want to make it a little bit more environmentally friendly, which I think is a nice aim. Yeah, I think some people would be concerned if they hear that sort of a, yeah, a chemical surfactant. Um, that's not meant to be edible is sprayed onto the flowers and then turn into fruit that that are eaten even though probably with rain and so on it's probably washed away very yeah, but quickly. washed away is also not good if you have something yeah. that's then disrupting the soil biota which is very very important as well yeah. so there's yeah. there there's a good point that they raise and yeah, I, absolutely. I like that they raise that kind of on themselves um, and there's also some other sort of more critical voices, especially in the ScienceMag article that I read about it, um, that we also linked. They ask a couple of other people. Um, and uh, I think the strongest criticism that I found there was that um, this is sort of uh, a very technical solution. I mean, it's, it's literally using robots um, in place of insects to, to do the job. Um, and it might give some people sort of the, the fake um, security that we don't really need the insects to pollinate our plants anymore because now we have robots and bubbles that can still do it and so we don't have to spend as much time in protecting insect biodiversity and, and insect populations and so on. Um, so there was the strongest criticism, um, which of course in the study they never said that they should now not protect insects anymore. I think these go hand in I'm hand. But I understand the feeling that we have this tendency of uh, also in like in the climate crisis, instead of saying we reduce the carbon emissions, instead we build like very complicated technical solutions to capture the carbon. And some people say this is enough now, we don't have to reduce anything, when in fact we need both. We need to reduce uh, emissions and have carbon capture and we need to protect insects. And where we can't, we need robotic pollination to still have agriculture happening. Yeah, I'm, I'm usually very strongly in this idea of 
let's not try to solve or let's not try to fix a problem. Let's try to like undo the damage. So, um, yeah, I, I, I'm very, I really don't like, um, discussions about how to solve or like bypass the issues that we humans have caused. Um, having said that in this situation, I think there's like, my understanding is, and I'm not, I'm not super expert on this topic. So I'm not, somebody can correct me if they want to, but my understanding is that currently with um, bees, they're driven around America on trucks. So um, they have mobile colonies of bees, which are loaded onto trucks and driven to depending on the season and depending on the orchards that need to be um, pollinated. So, those bees they are threatened there are some problems for, for the bee populations that's been like this colony collapse but these bees are also kind of being farmed and and sort of like living a lifestyle that they might that might not be ideal for for the bees so the argument here would be like maybe we just don't have to exploit the bees in this way maybe we can um still keep the bees alive but not have them like constantly be moving around and working in in this way like this could be something yep. that yeah, yeah and, and this is like a, a vegan argument for whether you should eat things like almonds, which um, heavily rely on these mobile bee buses um, to be uh, pollinated. Um, plus, yeah, bee if, exploitation. Plus, uh, if we grow things in greenhouses or if we think about stuff like vertical farming, a very trendy thing also in the sustainability field where they say we can con convert urban structures into vertical farms, um, to, to grow right now it's only like salads and some herbs that are grown but eventually you could imagine growing fruit and stuff there that also requires pollination but in these often sterile environments you don't have pollinators there because you keep everything out so also there it could be very worthwhile to have um, such a robotic system um, yeah there's also some other criticism from other researchers that work on different approaches that say maybe we don't need a flying platform but instead need just a robot that drives on the ground and has sort of a long arm that moves around and sprays it um, because then you don't have the problems with the wind from the propellers and so on um, and but yeah so there are some details where some people argue that um, you might find other solutions but I think that's also the spirit of science you have different opinions uh -huh. and you have to test them out and figure out the best solution. And I, th I still think it's a very cool um, integration of sort of conventional technology like these bubble guns, high-tech. The, the drone was actually autonomous. It was uh, self-flying and self-directing. Um, then you have the biology of the pollen and then you have the farming systems. And all of that is integrated into this very clever system. Um, so yeah, I, I quite like that paper for that reason. Yeah. So the paper is Soap Bubble Pollination. It came out in iScience um, this month, 2020 June, um, and it's by Young and Miyako. So go and check it out. And also, Young, you reckon particularly check out the videos, yeah? Yeah, there are videos uh, there of, first of all, the, uh, the bubble gun um, and also of the drone-mounted bubble dispenser flying past some lilies in these containers and dropping bubbles uh, on them. Um, so, yeah, that's just... I, I like it when they have videos in papers uh, where it makes sense to show like something moving and, and flying about. So that's really cool. This is where the fun begins. This is where the fun begins. This is where the fun begins. Uns, uns. Uh, is it you? Is it me? Who is it? 
I I can start. I have I have something um, small that some someone alerted us on Twitter to uh, brought to our attention that there's the SPPS PhD Student Conference 2020, um, usually in Turku, Finland, um, and yeah, organized by the PhD students. But this year, because of the Corona situation, um, the conference has been moved online, which makes it much more accessible to many more people um, because it doesn't require a flight to Finland right now. Um, so um, we just want, if you are a PhD student, if you are interested in plant science, um, it's about bio biology and bio um, the bioeconomy. Um, the registration is open. I think it's around 50 euros to register. Um, they have some, yeah, they have scientific talks, but they also have some non-scientific activities. And I think um, it's definitely interesting for the plant science and to support other PhD students organizing such a conference. Um, and also, I think I would be curious if I would still be in research to see how an online conference works. And I think this is a great way to yeah play around with this, figure out like, how do scientific and non-scientific activities work in a sort of remote situation um so yeah if you are interested in this uh, we have a link there and check this out um my fun fact <laughs> one of my fun facts is i found out about pedamorphosis this week do you know what that is pedamorphosis no um i try to I mean, morphosis is the change of the, the sort of outside structure, the morphology, the structure of the body. That's the first, but you know what metamorphosis is, right? Yeah. How many, like, if you're looking at animals, how many of them do you think go through metamorphosis? Um, I mean, most insects, uh -huh. um, some like amphibians and reptiles and things. Yeah, so basically the answer is most animals because most insects and insects are such a huge group of animals that most animals actually have separate life cycles and change from like a young lover or like a yeah, young um, life cycle to um, an adult life cycle. But I found out the other day that salamanders and newts um, have this new thing called pedomorphosis, which is basically that they become sexually mature without actually going in through metamorphosis and like not actually becoming the right adult form so you have this really weird thing where there's like if you can imagine what an axolotl looks like do you know what an axolotl is yeah like the mexican walking fish so basically a small salamander or a small newt looks a little bit like an axolotl but it's like kind of a bit more translucent and a bit tadpole and then you can also have an adult Pedomorph, so it's like an adult sexually, it can sexually reproduce, but it hasn't become a salamander or a newt in its, its living hmm. form. And the actual metamorph, the one that's like the full adult, looks more like less like a fish and more like just kind of a slightly wet lizard. So there's this weird thing where like they never become the slightly wet lizards, they stay in the weird like kind of axolotl fish thing, mm -hmm. but they can still have sex, which is just, it blew my mind. Like, I don't know. Do they know just, why? Is there like any mechanistic explanation? 
I mean, I guess it makes sense at some point to be an aquatic life form. So usually um, the the full adult, this metamorph, is like terrestrial and um, the the adult metamorph is more um, aquatic. So I think it can just make a lot more sense to stay in that aquatic form, especially I think aquatic environments tend to be more stable. Um, so maybe there's environmental... I didn't look into kind of the, the reasons, but it looks like some species basically very rarely become the terrestrial um, mm-hmm. adult metamorph stage and basically stay as pedomorphs, whereas others, like, some of them change. It's it's cool. completely bizarre. Yeah. Like, and then it's, it's like, you can go from egg to larva to pedomorph, so, like, still, like, water thing, back to egg again, or you can go from pedomorph to terrestrial adult and then back to egg, or you can go from larva to terrestrial. It's just like this completely confusing, complex life cycle of <laughs> these like salamander newt things. And <laughs> it's so weird. Like, why? Yeah. yeah. I don't know. I'm really impressed. Well done. Well done, salamanders. You've confused me and upset me, and I love you for it. <laughs> You're beautiful. Um, beautiful salamanders. Yeah, yeah, and also because like we don't have newts and salamanders, I don't think we have them really in Australia. I suspect it's too hot there. At least I I didn't have much contact with them, but they're quite big in um, Roald Dahl books. So they come up like in Matilda. There's a, a newt I think that Matilda mm-hmm. puts in the drinking glass of Miss Trunchbull, the, the bad headmistress. And this concept of what a newt was is just so bizarre to me. Like. Yeah, and that was already kind of this weird, I mean, this weird disconnect between what I knew about animals and this, like, wet lizard that I'm seeing in books. And now I'm, I'm finding out more about them, and they're even more bizarre, and I just, I don't know what to do about it. <laughs> Crazy. I think, yeah, I also remember that I had them in, like, children's books and so on. They played much more of a role than Than they do read. in your day-to-day life. Yeah, but I, I realized it's that like now with me- my children's uh, books, my, my child's books, um that there is like a couple of animals that you have in all of these books and you mm. rarely actually see them. Like you always moles. have uh, moles, hedgehogs. I've seen like two or three hedgehogs, hedgehogs in my life. Yeah, I've I, like I've seen them, but they are in the, in these books, you, they are there as often as cats and dogs. While mm. you see cats and dogs every single day, um, but you don't see, like you see a hedgehog once a year. I live now in a part of the city where I see foxes from time to time, but it's also something that's not that common to see. Um, and they're also in all of the books. Um, so it's this weird thing where you, pre- like, I mean, it's nice to show all these animals to children. There's nothing wrong in that. Um, but it's sort of. But you're like, I, I've been misled. Like this, yeah. this made me believe that I would need to understand how a mole worked in order to move through my daily life. And in fact, I don't. It's, like it's understanding like how a cat and dog works is is useful, but it's like quicksand. It's in so many adventure stories, quicksand is a threat. And in real life, quicksand is a very rare event. Like, I mean, for in Australia, it's anything where the weather becomes like cold and there's snow. Like we have so many stories about like snow, especially. And actually, even even in the UK, there's this idea that snow is majorly misrepresented at Christmas time. It never snows at Christmas. It rarely snows in the UK. It's not that common in the UK anyway, but it rarely snows at Christmas. It's just too warm then. It, it will snow later. But apparently... One of the things, I think I heard this from No Such Thing as a Fish, is that like during the first five years of Charles Dickens' life, it was like unusually cold in those five years and it like snowed like four out of five of, of his young life years. And therefore he wrote about it snowing at Christmas, like in the Christmas Carol. And that kind of popularized this idea of having a white Christmas, but it just doesn't happen. Like it's like one guy got this, like just got too much fame and was like, you guys, it snows at Christmas. And we're like, oh yeah, it snows at Christmas. No, it doesn't. No, Charles, like you're a liar, Charles. You're also kind of weird, but you're a liar. Like, I think he might also have like a, an interest in inappropriately young women. Um, 
but I don't know anything about that. So I think I'm, he really <laughs> liked seventeen-year-olds. I'm sure I saw a, a, a um, stage play by Miriam Margulis, Marilyn Margulis, I think her name is, um, where like every single one of his books has this reference to like a seventeen-year-old who's like the perfect womanly form, and at the same time, he moved his wife's seventeen-year-old sister into the house with them, uh-huh. and she subsequently died. And there was this kind of like weird thing that maybe he had like been interested then he kind of like got obsessed and like idolized her because she died uh, too young and it kind of made its way into his creepy creepy writing yeah but Weird. um don't sue me charles dickens <laughs> ha 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 you can't um but i i think that might be correct i mean it's based on my very patchy I memory think that might be correct is a great tagline for a science podcast science. <laughs> i think that um, might be correct <laughs> i'm gonna quickly google dickens women miriam while you do that, I'll tell a quick story that I read, I think, on... Now I have to check, click the link where I actually read there. No, I, I'm re- right. It is true. It's true. Okay. <laughs> At least it's true according to Miriam Margulies. So sue her and not me. <laughs> <laughs> um, I have a, a short um, piece that's I, I read it on The Guardian. Um, they said that mowing a lawn only once a month um, can greatly boost the number of insects you have on your grass. Um, be- uh, I think, if I understood it right, it's based on a survey that they did. Um, uh, and they figured out that when you mow o- uh, only every four weeks, then um, you have smaller plants that can grow and flower um, and attract uh, insects and then when you mow them they have this sort of stress response of flowering even more and sort of regrowing with more flower heads which then is again good for the insects so they say um, yeah reduce the amount the the times that you're mowing and of course it's even better if you let some stuff grow absolutely wild because then you get even more insects and more diverse insects there um and so they suggest in this um this little survey that if you have a lawn that you keep some part unmowed and the other part you rarely mow um to increase insect life there so yeah, I just found that interesting. That makes me feel much better about the fact that A, our lawn is mostly not lawn at this stage. It's like dandelions and blackberries and wild grass. And um, and also our lawnmower broke and we don't know how to... Well, I mean, we haven't bothered investigating how to fix it. I think it's an easy fix. But <laughs> now I, I think that I'm just doing my... My, my laziness it's, is doing my part for the environment. So you're welcome, environment. Yeah, it's great for biodiversity. Um, and I, I just... Oh, sorry. No, no. Say it. I just tried to look up the the Dickens thing, and um, like if he was obsessed with seventeen year olds, separate from the the Mary Margulies thing. Um, and unfortunately, what I came up with was a link to the Daily Mail, which has in the title the affair with an eighteen year old temptress that drove Dickens to dot dot dot. I'm not really sure to the grave, <laughs> um, which I just find really disgusting. Um, I, I don't know. I can't read the articles. I have my ad, blo- ad blocker on. So sorry, Daily Mail, if I'm unfairly commenting on you. But I'm not sure that an 18-year-old was a temptress in a situation where there was an old white guy who had all the power and an 18-year-old. Yeah. I think the word temptress puts the the idea that she tempted him, which maybe he just couldn't keep it to himself, and he's the problem. Yeah, that's disgust language, people. He's the problem. <laughs> 
Again, come at me, Dickens. <laughs> Bring it on. I bet you Dickens has like a huge family estate who's like really litigious. It's like yeah, he's they, dead, but his legacy of like suing the <laughs> out of everybody lives on. <laughs> They're looking for small science podcasts to to build their wealth by suing them. So, yeah, yeah, thanks, I have Dickens, no for money. bankrupting us. <laughs> and uh, don't take my plants from me. <laughs> um, it's a good segue to a follow-up fact. Um, on taking away plants because um, some people took almost 3,000 plants to an opera house. Um, you told us about this story last week. <laughs> I poorly told about this story last week. Uh, but now there's pictures. Um, now I, I have a link to uh, a Guardian article, but I found it at several places. Pictures and a, and a video, and it just looks magical. You have this opera house with sort of several levels of, of I think it's called ranks, right, of seats. And it's all filled with, um, yeah, big potted plants. Um, oh, my goodness. It's like over 2,000 plants, it says. Yeah. I really didn't imagine that. I thought they would put like three shrubs in there and call it a day. I didn't realize it was actually going to be. No, it's like four musicians on the stage um, playing the music. And there's 2,292 <laughs> potted plants in the audience. And they're all like large potted plants. It's not that they took out like... 2000 little arabidopsis plants it's like big things um like ficuses and um i don't know what the other plants were that i saw there but like some of them look like standard office plants but yeah they must have come from somewhere so maybe they took them from people who like talk bad stuff about uh dead authors Maybe they were rescued when we all went for to work from home maybe they were rescued from offices and like nurtured and like let like Maybe yeah. the plants get to go to the opera house while we're working from home. Because <laughs> otherwise they're dead, guys. Like, you've left them for three months now, your office plants are dead. <laughs> uh, it's really beautiful, guys. If you do nothing else today, go and look at that photo. Yeah, it's really yeah. pretty. That's so cool. <laughs> it's made me really happy. <laughs> Wait. See, I was so happy I just, like, tried to break my phone. Um, <laughs> I have something that is published, a publication that came out in Nature Foods. It's open access, so we'll put the link in. Um, and it's called Consumer Acceptance of Novel Food Technology. It's a review. And it's basically just discussing how we will deal with food security in the future, which is obviously a huge problem that we have to approach in coming years. Um, growing population, also increasing problems like climate change that's making f food security um, more problematic. Um, and it's kind of talking about that in this in the context of how we as humans deal with new food and new food methods. And one of the ideas is kind of that when new foods or new food technologies come in, they're not actually replacing old technologies. They're kind of existing side by side to those technology, which kind of has a difference in then how we like move with the times. And what I liked a lot was that it has a figure, figure one, which shows um, the historical timeline of food technology. So that goes all the way back to 700,000 years before common era, which is fire, mm. um, is the thing that happened. I, I don't and like then, fire. I think it's it was a bad move. I think <laughs> food was better before we used this, like, too modern stuff. I like stuff. fire a lot. But that's why I'm not allowed in restaurants with candles anymore. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, so, like, also... So, so here's, here's the thing, like, we can play... What came first, refrigerators or, or pressure cookers? Um, 
It's a tough one because I can imagine a primitive version of both of them. Okay, let's go. Pressure cooker, pasteurization, refrigerator, and canning. Rank them. Order. In order. Um, mm. I would say, like, refrigerate, like, does a sort of um, a earthware container that's no. wet count. That's no. sort of condensation no. and cooling contents. You mean, like, a refrigerator <laughs> as in with a coolant system and so on? Yeah. Okay. Um I think. No, actually, I'm not sure. Anyway, <laughs> rank them. I don't care. <laughs> um, I would say first the pressure cooker, then what was what was the other thing? Uh, pasteurization. And pasteurization. Canning. Canning was quite cooker. late. I mean, I th uh, canning was like somewhere 19th century. Um, and 1795, canning food. Yeah, but they got it only safe, like very late. Like before That's that, you point. had a lot of like Botox, like... Well, that's Poisoning. only because you didn't have stainless steel and stuff like that. That's not the point. The point is food was canned. Anyway, um, <laughs> this was supposed to be a very quick game and you've turned it into a long thought process. Um, <laughs> Sorry. Anyway, it's it's kind of cool just to look at this graphic um, and it has different things from like what we just discussed, canning food, but also things like food extrusion, which I never thought about, came about in the 1930s. So that's like putting things into shape, like extruding, extruding shit in different shapes, which is... Um, I mean, it became very important now with like the, the meat alternatives. A lot of the soy protein is then extruded into sort of these granules or the burger mm. patties with the pea protein. That's also an extrusion process and so on. Yeah, and like most of our like pastas, which are not kind of mm -hmm. basic shapes, it's all this this thing. Um, so from there, it's like also souvide, which is really modern, 1970s, um, GMO food, molecular gastronomy. So it kind of has that. But I think it's... um. Nice. Go, go check that out, guys. It's, it's kind of a cool idea. And it's I like the idea of the fact that when it comes to food, a lot of it's based also on our perceptions, not based on like the nutritional quality of the food or the actual advantage. We have this kind of mm -hmm. like strong negative feelings that we can associate with food, like for GMOs, like, oh, no, this is like a Frankenstein food and this is not good. So this is, I, I don't know, I, I think it's an interesting discussion to think about. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh, another interesting discussion is a very scientific discussion that's going on. I don't know how much it uh, right now, but I read a long article on the Science Mac um, about the controversy about the idea if trees are making wind, if trees are moving air to a large extent that it's uh, important in climate, um, climate modeling and so on. Um, and apparently there is this uh, Russian physicist. Um, her name is Anastasia Makarieva. Um, who together with her former boss who who died by now um they came up with the idea that trees they not only pump water from the ground through the evaporation and the, the transpiration of the leaves into the air this pumping of water um, leads then to condensation above the trees leading to clouds and when you have condensation you have sort of a large volume of of water vapor that then condenses into smaller droplets so it it reduces its volume and when it reduces its volume something has to take the place of the empty space sort of and that's drawing in air from the sides and they came up with this model this idea that above large forests you have these air currents that are moving from the forest and um, they're sort of fighting the idea that the water cycle and the wind cycle is mainly driven by the oceans but instead that forests have a play a major role in there and then there's some climate uh, model 
specialists that say that all of these effects they do exist but they're very small and they don't really matter in the grand scheme of things and so there's this debate and the interesting thing about this debate is not only like first of all i quite like the idea that forests have this like major climate effect um uh, they hypothesize that forests can help to to draw um water sort of inwards into a landmass so if you if you are far away from a shore um the water that you get there it's sort of put into the circulation of the system by forests because trees pump uh, like one tree had um I think it was like several hundred liters of water that it, I don't know in what time frame, but it moves a lot of water um, through its root system into the air. Um, and that has an effect on on the climate. And they say places that have little forest, um, they dry out in the inland, like in Central Africa, where you have then this uh, aridification of the lands and so on. Um, and the scientific debate is also interesting from sort of a meta perspective because um, the climate model researchers, they are often sort of Western researchers and have their climate model community. And then you have these two Russian physicists um, that find it... That that are not really taken seriously they have a big um they when they submitted one of their studies um it took three years to find reviewers that were willing to put up with this sort of controversial idea and even write a review of it independent of whether or not they would deny it or, or accept it or reject it um but it's uh, at one point they said um the anastasia makarieva said um for her it's extra hard like she is um a woman from an eastern european country from a discipline that's not climate modeling so there's like several layers um why people don't take her stuff seriously um uh, on top of the scientific dispute so it's not only the question whether or not it's scientifically accurate what she's saying but it's also it's hard for her to just get get taken seriously in the discussion to 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 be heard um, but wait sorry part of her discussion is that the reason she's not being taken seriously in the climate science research field is because she's not a climate scientist that's yeah, not that that's a good argument to not take her seriously if i start talking about human biology you should take less care of what i say than if i start talking about photosynthesis and, and chloroplast development that's 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 not a wrong thing to say, right? To a certain extent, yes, but I think... Like, it's... I'm a doctor, but I'm not, like, a doctor of all the doctorate doctors. I'm a specifically a plant molecular biology doctor. Yeah. Yeah, but I guess she comes sort of from from the angle of um, thermodynamics and, and physics that also play a part in these climate models. Um, and... I, I I can't say it, whether or not she's right or not. Um, it sounds like there is, she has some scientific like support in the scientific community. She's not the only single individual coming up with these ideas. Um, but uh, so yeah, I can't say whether or not it's it's scientifically true. But I think it is a problem in science um, that we sort of tend to stick to the majority opinion. Where we have very good reasons for that, but it makes it really hard to come up with uh, radical new ideas, and we we need to strike a balance there. And it's just um, the the article is, is is sort of a long read, but it's really worth it. It's really well written, and it's it portrays both sides. And um, in the end, they don't say whether or not she's right. I just like that it ends with a quote that um, is attributed to Max Planck. Um, he says that advan uh, science advances one funeral at a time. 
And I quite like the idea that you, yeah, and sometimes you need to have sort of the old guard die off so that new ideas can can flourish and can can be brought into the scientific system. Um, and yeah, I just um, I, I like this this story and the idea that that forests um, might have some impact on climate. Uh, wh whether that is a very large impact no, 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 or very no, no, small no. impact, I, I can't say. The impact on climate is not the, the debate. The impact of causing wind is a debate. Yeah. Although, no, some, some, even, some even argue that the, the uh, impact of transpiration is not that as large. Although okay, but nobody's arguing that plants don't transpire. That's no, not no, like, no, that's, that's not that's up to full debate. A, yeah. But they say the evaporation you get on ocean surfaces is more important for getting water into the air than you, the transpiration from trees, is what some people argue in the modeling. They say trees do the transpiration, but it doesn't matter in the grand scheme of things, is what some people say. And other researchers say um, that in places that are far away from coastlines, it's a very important process. Um, I, there's one number where they say that 80% of the rainfall in China um, could be tracked back that the water there based on the isotope um, composition uh, comes from sort of west uh, from the west direction so across the whole Eurasian continent um, even though China has a large coastline but it's sort of blowing wind from the west to China that transports water with it that then rain that rains down there um, so yeah I just I just like the concept, the idea that like forests have this like major potentially have this major impact. Um and that reforestation gets this this added angle to it, why it's important. It's not just carbon capture and it's not just uh biodiversity, it's also uh, a climate control thing. Um so yeah. Uh -huh. read, read the article. It's uh it's <laughs> not mean, only the story <laughs> of the Russian Russian researcher, it's sort of the whole idea of what what role do forests play in climate and uh, water cycling? Uh, yeah, do you have another fact? Um, I have like a very quick thing, which is kind of linked to to a similar kind of xenophobia theme. There was something um, a book review that came out in in Nature, which is um, uh, by Stefan Borani and it's called Scathing COVID-19 Book from Lancet Editor, Rushed But Useful. So just a review of a book that came out recently. Um, but it's basically discussing how the UK and the US have done terribly in the COVID crisis. And one of the things that comes up in the book is um, dun, 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 um, suggesting that researchers in the UK were insufficiently informed, and I'm quoting now, were insufficiently informed or understanding of the crisis unfolding in China and were too insular to speak to Chinese scientists directly. Mm -hmm. So I kind of like this um, in the context of, of like global communication and science, this idea of like, like after when COVID took off, there was a lot of blame put on China. Um, and this is sort of saying like, yeah, but what about the fact like that other biases exist? And I think this is particularly true for um, the UK and the US, less so for Italy and some other places of Europe. But like the UK, by the time we got COVID, it was we had already seen what happened in Italy. So like the UK and the US saying that the problems are because of them not knowing from China. There's a little bit of bullshit involved there because they'd already seen like what happened in Italy, and mm. yeah, then you have to sort of question what that country has done wrong, which I think is very clear now for anybody who's following um, this this story. Like, 
yeah. the way our governments have behaved is, is really atrocious and murderous. Let's use that word. It is murderous. Um, yeah. <laughs> Um, yeah, I have one one last fun fact that's also not so fun. It's it's also dealing with um, sort of systemic issues. There was a study. Um, I found this article on the BBC. I think, um, yeah, that uh, there was a study that looked at um, uh, one thousand scientific names or more than one thousand scientific names found uh, in seven modern biology textbooks that mm -hmm. are used to teach undergraduates that enter science and medicine in the US. And um, they saw a massive like shift of the representation towards white men, um, which is uh, not a big surprise. But what I found especially devastating was that there was not a single black woman represented in these um, textbooks. And yep. they, they acknowledged in the article that these are also sort of historic documents. And for the longest time, a lot of people simply were not taken seriously uh, or did not have access to the academic system. So therefore, they didn't end up on papers and therefore they didn't make the discoveries um, that were then retold in textbooks. Um, but they also say in the article that textbooks publishers are tasked with balancing an accurate portrayal of his history while showcasing contemporary science that reflects a diverse population of learners. Um, which I find uh, um, yeah, a good approach to say, yeah, you, of course you can say, yeah, back in 1900, there were no black women in science that, uh, that could publish their research if, they, if even they had access to do research. Um, but you can sort of undercut uh, the historical retells with modern day research where you then find more diverse people and when you look for examples in modern research you can look specifically for examples of people with diverse backgrounds to be represented in the books not even that i mean the minimum is if you're only going to show old white males because only old white males were the ones who were like getting the big the big stuff happening in those days because of the biases The bare minimum is you need to point out the biases and say, hey, you might notice that all the people we've listed are old white men. That's not because women and minorities of other types were not able to do science. Here is the systemic problems. And you need to point out the problems. Like, you don't have to, like, go and find... I mean, you should try and put some effort into go and finding other people. But, like, at the bare minimum, don't just pretend that there's nothing weird about a picture that's only old white men. Like, because that's the biggest problem is, like... Yeah normalizing the idea of there only being normal, like old white men at least like say yeah this is gross here's why it happened let's yep. not let it happen again yeah um yeah and actually um esther odekunle who i mentioned at the top of the show she just posted um a link to this study on her um instagram page i think yesterday or today yeah yeah so um that's my fun fact do you have a cat fact because i don't i have two cat facts one of them Perfect. is not even slightly a cat fact um <laughs> <laughs> cat fact <laughs> and i'm gonna go. make your arm use the duck sound this um first one is from the website <laughs> i f love science uh, <laughs> ifls um and it's the story of a german post office that had to be evacuated because of a gas leak um, and the gas leak turned out to be durian, which is the world's smelliest fruit. So <laughs> if you guys haven't had the pleasure of smelling durian, it's basically, it's like feet and rubbish, like a tip and um, 
rotting something. It's it's pretty strong, and it's actually banned in hotels and on the underground in Singapore. Um, it's really smelly. Um, that is vaguely a cat fact because for some reason that is not explained, the story also has an embedded um, gif of a cat smelling durian and then like looking like it's going to vomit. So go and check that out. I would really <laughs> recommend that. Um, yeah, the cat like runs away as you would expect. Um, and then the second, again, kind of cat fact is something again from nature. Um, it's corona misinformation and how scientists can help fight it. It's um, a feature that came out on the 17th of June. Um, so kind of, you know, it's explained in the title. But the the most delightful thing I found was that one of the the COVID lies, like there's been like a lot of false facts going around COVID. So it, it lists like injecting disinfectant, eating sea lettuce, holding your breath, like all this stuff. I mean, we've all seen like drink a lot of water to wash the COVID away, these kind of things. Um, and then it says, okay, all the other reasons. And also, and I'm quoting, Russian President Vladimir Putin did not release 500 lions in Moscow to persuade the city's residents to stay indoors as part of the efforts to fight the pandemic. Which... He did not release them. He did not. Like, as it turns out, the idea that he did release the lions was in fact a lie. And Okay, so people told the fake news of that. Okay. That he released lions. Which I then, like, was telling this to my colleague, and she's like, no, he didn't release lions. They were saber-toothed tigers, don't you know? She's like, <laughs> lions are too tame for Vladimir. <laughs> Which, yeah, I don't know. I thought that was quite yeah. bizarre. <laughs> it definitely is bizarre. If you want to contact us about voices that can act or any other issues, you can see us on Instagram or Facebook where you can talk to me. And like, honestly, Yoram doesn't want to hear you about octopus. If you have octopus facts, bring them at me. I love octopuses. Octopi? I don't, octopi. I, I octopi. Don't mind octopi. I like to eat okay. them. They're good. They're so tasty. Oh, I want to make takoyaki. <laughs> But I don't I've have been watching this um, Anthony Bourdain show with my housemate who's vegetarian. And Anthony Bourdain's whole thing is he basically goes around eating a ton of meat and drinking a lot of alcohol. And my housemate is vegetarian and doesn't drink. Um, and she's just spending the whole time like turning to her partner and I and being like, would you really eat that? And we're just like, yes. <laughs> like these like little octopus with this tentacles on. And yeah, yeah, it looks very tasty. Yeah. Okay, so on Instagram <laughs> and Facebook, it's at Plants and Pipettes. On Twitter, you can talk to me. Um, you'll find us there at Plants Pipettes. We also have a website, so it's www.plantsandpipettes.com. Yeah, where we publish about twice a week articles about um, stuff that's going on in the world of molecular plant research. Um, go check that out. Yeah, and you can find us on your favorite podcatcher. Um, if you want to that would be really great you can do it on itunes but also on any kind of podcastery appy thing that you're using please give us yeah. nice five star ratings tell your friends about uh, us if you know somebody who would like this sort of thing do that you we have do friends if you <laughs> if you have friends tell me how you met how you did that <laughs> i want to know your secret um yeah tell me how to make friends in lockdown because i had all these plans for me, like forcing people in the office to befriend me um it's it's harder now it's, yeah. it's got harder 
Yeah, because they can say something like, oh, my laptop ran out of battery. I have to end the Zoom call. Um, and yeah. suddenly you have one friend less. Um, yeah, they can escape more easily. That's the problem. <laughs> That's why I need my octopuses. They can like herd them and then like suck their tentacles onto them and then like people are captured. Um, our opening and closing music is Caravana by Philip Gross. And talk to you next week. Goodbye. That's it. Bye.